0: and i'm raj
1: and this is blood cancer talks we're a podcast dedicated to haematologic malignancies where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focus on the latest advances in biology and clinical management please take a moment to rate and review our podcast in whichever app you listen to your podcasts in Today, we're excited to talk about bispecific T-cell engaging antibodies or bispecific antibodies for the treatment of lymphoma, an exciting group of new treatments with promising data in phase two trials and with three different agents for this class already approved for use in the US. We're delighted to be joined by Dr. Michael Dickinson, a hematologist and the lead for aggressive lymphoma at Peter McAllen Cancer Center and the Royal Melbourne Hospital and associate professor at the University of Melbourne in Australia who specializes in lymphoma and who has led many of the early phase trials of bispecific antibodies in lymphoma. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Dickinson. To start with, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your career background and how you came to be so involved with lymphoma research and in particular bispecific antibodies?
2: Oh, thanks very much for inviting me to uh, be part of this podcast. I, I've enjoyed listening to it and, and hearing all of the other discussions you've had. So I hope I can we can have an interesting discussion today. So yes, I'm a hematologist. I work at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne, which is in the south of Australia. And in my centre, I lead the aggressive lymphoma group and also do a lot of CAR T-cell treatment. And I do clinical trials, so I'm an academic doing clinical trials, both investigator-initiated and industry-sponsored. I guess my 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 personal story is that as a, it's always knew from very young age that I wanted to be a doctor, and I had doctors in the family to be honest, who I looked up to and who told me that they liked helping patients and in particular my father is a cancer surgeon and he's he is a football player and a rower and and a very different sort of personality from me. And I said to him, hey, why do you like doing what you're doing? And he said, oh, it's great. If a patient's got a broken leg, I can just fix it. If they've got a tumor, I can just cut it out and they go out and they're just better and they're fixed and and, and that's it. Problem solved. Very surgical. Kind of attitude that that I grew up with, and but I'm not a surgeon, and I, I, I can't catch a ball, and I've always been a bit bookish, and so it was always going to be a physician line for me. And I went to medical school in Perth, which is I grew up in Brisbane, went to medical school in Perth, which is on the other side of the country. Perth's like one of the most isolated uh, cities, capital cities in the world, and I think one of the windiest capital cities in the world, and. In that I had a wonderful medical school experience there in, in undergraduate medicine, and my first clinical rotation was with a great hematologist called David Joski, who introduced me to a patient with leukemia, and I thought, this is it, this looks interesting, and he's fixing some young people, and so I, I decided pretty quickly I was interested in hematology. And then everything from then has been that kind of recipe of, a little bit of luck, a little bit of planning, having good, some good mentors, and also just being available to take opportunities as they arose. So I did basic physician training in Brisbane and then had a kind of a gap year before, my, before the big gateway exams and went to London thinking, I'm just going to have a year off and do locums and have a fun time. And my first locum was at the Royal Marsden in London, where I did, did a junior doctor job with Stella Matutis and Danny, Danny katowski And one of the fellows there said, hey, why don't you just ask David Cunningham for a fellowship? So I did a fellowship with David Cunningham in lymphoma. And that was that. They said, why don't you Why don't you think about working at Peter Mackie in Melbourne? And that sort of is what happened. And I, I've had a few diversions along the way. I was interested, very interested in Hodgkin lymphoma lymphoma and very interested in panobinostat at the time I was doing my training and that got me into epigenetics. And then I got stuck in myelodysplastic syndromes for a while and did myelodysplastic syndrome IITs. I did a a, a global trial or two, but finally found my way back to to lymphoma, partly because in my center, we were doing trials with CAR T-cells at a time when I didn't know what a CAR was at our center it was one of the first centers to explore car t cells we know that the us centers got way ahead there but we did some great early phase trials when i was in early in my training and then finally we saw with linotumumab, the potential of t cell activation to to address lymphoid malignancies we saw the pivotal trials with with the commercial car t cells and that really got me into the potential of treating lymphoma with immunotherapies. And that's how I got to to where I am and just really kept following that that love of essentially the gratification of patients with bad problems that can be fixed. And so I'm a clinician at heart. That's what I do day to day.
1: Isn't it fantastic. It's um great to hear how you ended up where you are. Let's jump right in. We'll start with a case and then we can sort of refer back to the case as we go through the episode. So I've got an otherwise healthy 60 year old female who presents eight months after receiving AxiCell CAR T-cells for relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. She's developed eight months after her CAR T-cells some new auxiliary lymphadenopathy and a pet confirms that she's got widespread relapse. So for a patient like this, before we had a bispecific antibody, what was your uh, approach or what would your treatment approach to a, a patient like this have been?
2: I guess the experience of bispecific antibodies for many people is that they've come along after CAR T-cells, but my experience of bispecific antibodies was using them before CAR T-cells were routinely available. So I used a lot more glofitamab before uh, routinely having access to commercial CAR T-cells. So I have to kind of imagine the answer to your question a little bit, but Basically, relapse after CAR T-cell therapy is really tricky. So this is a really heterogeneous group of patients. It's not just one clinical problem. This is a spectrum of patients where the choice of treatment is challenged by the clinical condition that the patient is in and the absolute specifics of their relapse. You've described a patient who's responded to CAR T-cells and then relapsed eight months later. This is the kind of patient who really you have a range of choices. They're more likely to have good hematologic function. They've got disease that's responded. So they're more likely to have disease that responds again. And so the choices are broad, but there's no kind of standard of care. So it's not absolutely crazy to offer cytotoxic chemotherapy in a patient who's responded to CAR T-cells and then relapsed after some kind of durable remission, but most of us wouldn't do that because most of these patients have a history of uh, cytotoxic refract- refractoriness to cytotoxic treatments. We've used drugs like lenalidomide in this kind of context and have seen some responses in those patients. But really, I think the standard of care now and the standard of care before CAR T-cells was to look hard for trials. And thats I know that's a motherhood statement. It's a motherhood statement, but I still think that's the case even with the advent of biospecific antibodies. And then, as I think we'll touch on the biospecific antibodies, clearly show some activity in patients like these. It's much more challenging if a patient's relapse after CAR T-cells is early and they still have uh, residual toxicities of CAR T-cells. And particularly patients who just progress through their CAR T-cell treatment, these are much more challenging to manage, even in the era of, of biospecific antibodies. One thing I would mention in terms of my approach is that This is one of those situations where, at least in my centre, it's an academic centre resourced and with lots of research projects going on, I I do have a look at the molecular characteristics of the tumour because there will be some patients where the molecular characteristics might help guide you towards a particular novel agent, a particular compassionate access program, or, or something like that. We've certainly had patients where we've picked up on mutations in, in that would affect responsiveness to checkpoint inhibitors, where using a drug like pembrolizumab actually has a rationale and works. That's the minority of patients, but you don't always know that from the immunohistochemistry, so sometimes genomics can be helpful.
1: Yeah, that's a really helpful way to set the stage. So uh, as you know well, there are three bispecific antibodies approved so far, but perhaps some more to follow soon. Coritimab, glofidimab for third-line DLBCL, and mozonotuzumab for third-line follicular lymphoma, which all target CD3 and CD20. So could you just start by giving us the basics of how these bispecific antibodies work against lymphoma?
2: Sure. So... Bispecific antibodies that we're currently using, we're talking about CD3 binding agents that also bind CD20. So these are essentially at least double-headed antibodies that bind CD3 on the surface of T-cells and CD20 on the surface of B-cells, which will be malignant and non-malignant B-cells. And what that leads to is T-cell activation and then subsequently death of the target cell. So there's a physical connection between T-cells and the target cell. And then that T-cell activation, importantly, is independent of co-stimulatory molecule binding. So it's HLA independent. You don't need the co-stimulatory molecules to get that T-cell activation and target cell killing. What we see in, in correlative studies is that when we do sequential biopsies on patients with lymphoma, that you can have a patient whose tumour is relatively free of T-cells in the tumour biopsy. You give a biospecific antibody and you see you see very rapid expansion of T-cells and margination of those T-cells into the tumour itself. So you really see that proof of principle that T-cells are being redirected towards the tumour prior to, to tumour cell death. And, of course, with that expansion of T-cells comes side effect profile and the release of cytokines, which I'm sure we'll talk about. So that's the mechanism of action. It's in keeping with drugs like blinatumomab, which have established an acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And of course, you've talked before about the my- myeloma biospecifics. In this case, it's mostly CD20 binding biospecifics that we're using in in lymphoma.
1: And you allude and talk about blinatumomab, The... Obviously, blinitumumab didn't kind of take off in lymphoma. Could you talk perhaps a bit about the differences between the, these current sort of era of bispecifics and blinitumumab and, and why blinitumumab didn't take off in lymphoma?
2: Yeah, sure. So blinitumumab works through the same basic principle, binding of CD3, activation of T-cells and killing of the target cell. The difference is that blinitumumab binds CD19. So that's one important difference. And the other difference is that blinitumumab It's a small molecule and it's been branded as a bite by specific T cell engager. So it's not actually an antibody in size. And the consequence of that is its pharmacokinetic properties. So blenitumumab is given as an infusion and a continuous infusion. And that has practical implications. We know that L is a relatively rare disease, often treated in inpatient settings and acute environments. And so it's feasible in that context. It's perhaps Less feasible in the context of lymphoma. So one of the so one of the key things that limited the development of blinatumomab in lymphoma is that it caused it. For starters, it's complicated to give, relatively compared to other lymphoma treatments that we use, and, and given that lymphoma is often treatment treated in a broad range of treatment settings. Secondly, it had quite a high rate of neurologic toxicity. So confusion, seizures, that actually occurred in almost a quarter of patients in the lymphoma trials and the early lymphoma trials for map. That toxicity profile improved with time a little bit, but that's a difficult drug to kind of release into the wild with that kind of rate of neurotoxicity. So I think that was a challenge. But I think that practical element about having to give an infusion as well was also part of it. What I would say about the blinatumumab data looking back on it years later is that it really showed that this mechanism of action could induce complete remissions in patients with aggressive lymphomas. And we've seen from some of that long-term follow-up data that some of those patients never relapsed. So there was real hints from blinatumumab that this mechanism of action would work. CAR-Ts have um, reinforced the role of T-cell activation for killing lymphoma. But, but yeah, it's just hard to take that kind of complicated drug forward in the setting of common lymphomas and broad treatment contexts, I think.
3: Now let's talk about the pivotal data supporting the biospecifics use and accelerated approvals. Now the trial showed similar results to each other, but let's discuss glofitamab, seeing you were the lead author. And the phase two trial, which included 155 patients with aggressive lymphomas, with 12-month follow-up presented in New England Journal of Medicine, and we we saw the longer follow-up data presented at ICML in Lugano. Can you give us an idea of the typical patients in the trial, including the ones you looked after? Example, like performance status, how many lines of therapy before they were enrolled into the clinical trial?
2: Sure, so so thank you for the question. So the trial of glofitamab, I would characterize the patients as being very typical of the kind of patients who we see in clinical practice with relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So the trial recruited patients with two or more prior lines of treatment and then the and it was relatively inclusive and the phase 2 part was a run on from the phase 1 part so it was a different cohort clearly defined group of cohorts in phase two, really trying to address this registration question, how efficacious is the drug in relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma? So two or more prior lines, but the patients recruited had a median of three or more prior lines of treatment. The median age was 66, so very typical of the relapsed refractory population that we see with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And importantly, 85% of patients were refractory to the immediate prior therapy. We had about 15, 15 to 20% of patients had transformed lymphoma and a third of patients had been exposed to CAR T-cells before. So going back to that case that you described, Eddie, this was a trial that addresses that kind of clinical context of patients who have been exposed to CAR T-cell therapy before. About 20% have been exposed to autologous stem cell transplantation. And you might think, oh, maybe these weren't a particularly heavily treated population. But when you think about the fact that about 60% of fra- patients were primary refractory, 85% have been refractory to their immediate prior therapy, the fact that roughly 20% of patients had received autologous transplantation really reflects what a challenge it is to take patients to autologous transplantation in first relapse. So I think, in terms of the recruited cohort, it, it was a ref, it enriched for refractory disease and and very much addressing the kind of clinical problem we see in 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 the clinic with relapsed diffuse large B cell lymphoma.
3: And how long do patients typically take to show a
2: response? So I guess that I guess we haven't talked much about response yet and we saw about half of patients respond overall to treatment and in this refractory population about 40% of patients had a complete remission and to put that into context the complete remission rate that we see with CAR T cells is in that sort of general domain we see a higher complete remission rate with some CAR T cells versus others but in the range of 40 to 50% with CAR T cells. So 40%, I think, is a clinically impactful complete remission rate in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. I think as clinicians for this disease, we recognise that our goal is to is to put patients into a deep remission and stop them relapsing. And to stop them relapsing, that complete remission is really the endpoint that we most care about. So I think that's a nice number to see. And then to address your question, those complete remissions happen quickly. So responses to biospecific antibodies, and this is pretty consistent across the other biospecific antibodies that target CD20, is uh, it's very quick. So our, our median time to complete responses 42 days, which is basically our first response assessment. And that accounted for really about 80% of patients who were going to achieve a complete response. And those who were in a partial response at that time, we, we would have seen a further 20% of patients destined to complete uh, to achieve a complete response in the subsequent response assessment. So two response assessments on a bispecific antibody will give you a sense of whether you're heading towards that goal of, of a complete remission. I think once we're beyond two or three response assessments, if the patient still has a PR, then one begins to wonder about what you're actually looking at on the PET scan. Is it still actually viable disease or not? I think that we don't see a kind of slow tempo of response to these biospecific antibodies. We don't see patients in a PR for three cycles and then at month six turn into a CR all that often. So on the whole, no, there are anecdotes, there are exceptions, but on the most part, this is an aggressive lymphoma that needs to respond quickly. If you're going to achieve durable, complete remissions.
3: Like coming back to our patient who was refractory after Tukartic therapy. Now for patients whose disease was refracted to therapy, do you think they respond more likely or less likely with the bispecific antibodies?
2: So, so this is a, it's, I think this is still a question that we don't know the answer to. So, I still think this is an area for research. I've already sort of alluded to the idea that, and I think you're alluding to the idea that you've got CAR T cell, patient who had a CAR T cell who didn't respond, but's alive to get through screening, to get onto a clinical trial and then be recruited and then. Go through the step-up dosing of a bispecific antibody and then achieve a response. That's a certain kind of characteristic. It's a subset of patients who, for whom CAR T have not been successful. And so I, I don't I don't think that bispecific antibodies will address patients with the most refractory progressive disease through CAR T cells. I think if, I think that's the kind of lymphoma that we chase very hard clinically. And I think bispecific antibodies have the advantage in that they're deliverable. They have an advantage in that they're less myelosuppressive than cytotoxic agents and some of the other novel agents that we might think of. this It's still a disease that moves fast. Now, in the roughly third of patients in the Glofitimab trial who were exposed to CAR T-cells, most of those patients had not responded to their CAR T-cells. But there had been some time between the CAR T-cells and them getting Glofitimab. And this is true across all the biospecific studies when you look. And there's some of that detail that's pretty difficult to tease out from the data. But basically, it does look like if you're a patient like the case that Eddie described, where the you've had some time since your CAR T-cells, even if you haven't had the kind of very enduring benefit that we would like, then biospecifics make sense. The CR rate is very similar to the overall population. The durability of response to biospecifics is very similar to the overall population. A little bit different if you're sitting there at day 20, post the CAR T-cells and the patient's pancytopenic and they've got a a football in their abdomen. In that particular context, in my personal clinical experience, biospecific antibodies are still difficult to deliver and difficult for patients to enjoy a response from it. And, And I'm talking there from my personal experience rather than to the pivotal data. I think that we need to see larger numbers, a third of a trial that's 150 patients, and then a series of trials of a similar size with roughly a third of patients with CAR T cells. Intrinsic tumor properties account for a significant part of resistance. And surely there must be some common things between the intrinsic tumor properties for patients who are resistant to CAR T cells, for patients who are resistant to bispecific antibodies. We know some of them, for some patients that true, P53 mutations and upregulation of MYC and BCL2 through, through translocations probably do predict lower responses to bispecifics and CAR T together, but there's probably some other mechanisms of resistance that are yet to be sorted through nevertheless, I still think biospecifics are the most promising class of agents in that CAR T-cell exposed group. But I just think there's some fine print and I, and about, about how they should be applied.
0: I had a quick follow-up question regarding the durability of response. So as we know, with CAR T-cell therapy and lymphoma, typically like 40% of patients have a durable CR at, let's say, two years in a ballpark. Is that similar with Glofitamab, for example, do we have that long term data on durability of CR, or we, are, or we still have only short term data with bispecifics?
2: So, the pivotal papers that have led to the registration of Glofitamab and Epcuritamab had relatively short follow up in them. And so, we're now seeing longer term follow up come out in conferences and conference publications and also we're seeing some long term follow up from the phase 1 studies and most of that very long term follow up data has come out from the from the data in particular i the way i kind of think about this problem is how would you talk to a patient about this because that's what a patient's going to ask isn't it okay great you've achieved a cr what does it mean am i going to be okay doctor so if we start with the base case, because you mentioned CAR T-cells, of patients who achieve a CR, they just like biospecifics, they generally achieve CRs early, and a proportion of patients will lose that response. And then if they're in a response at about the 12-month mark, generally the rate of loss of CR drops. So if you're in a CR at, say, 12 months after a CAR T-cell product with relapsed refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, you can be very hopeful that CR will be a multi-year CR and potentially you will be cured. We know that from the very long-term follow-up data from CAR T-cell treatment. So with biospecifics, it's pretty similar. You get an early complete remission. There is a loss of complete remission in a proportion of patients. Roughly 20% of patients will lose that complete remission over the first 12 months. But there are some milestones that we've looked at. In the pivotal data, it's 27 months. The duration of complete remission at 18 months is about two-thirds of patients. If we look at particular landmarks of treatment, because glofitimab is a fixed-course treatment, so patients receive 12 cycles of treatment given every, every three weeks. There's some detail that we can talk through, but basically 12 cycles of treatment. If you're in a complete remission at the end of your treatment for glofitimab, your chance of retaining that complete remission at the 12-month mark is exactly what I sort of said. 80%. Your chance of being alive at 12 months is 92%. So that's that, that shows that these responses that are being achieved with Glofidomab are deep and that patients can be taken off treatment and have durable responses at that all at that very important early landmark of 12 months. Now we've looked at long-term follow-up in patients who've been on the phase one study and the number of patients are relatively small. So we're talking about a dose escalation study. We had a look at patients who'd received what we thought were effective doses of glofitimab and who'd achieved a complete remission on those. And when we look at the very long-term now, multi-year follow-up, so 32-month median follow-up in those patients, the median duration of complete remission is not reached. So there's a proportion of patients who I think we're now seeing with multiple year follow-up who are probably being cured by this treatment. I mean, I think it, the the potential of these biospecific antibodies are curing patients is there, but I don't think we can really be pinned down yet on what that proportion is. You cited about 40% after CAR T cells have multi-year durable remissions. I think it's a little lower with the biospecific data that we've got so far, but Very hard to pin me down on the exact number just yet. I think we need bigger numbers and and longer follow up to fully understand that. What I would say, and and at at the risk of saying something that others have heard me say before, is that in my own clinic, because we've got patients that we treated from the very first doses of glofilumab, I've got doses. I've got patients who received just sort of four milligram do- glofitamab doses who are still alive and in a complete remission. Patients treated at the phase two go forward dose who have had multi-year complete remissions now. So don't know what the proportion is exactly, but I think the potential for multi-year remissions is is very clear cut.
1: When I was looking through some stuff to prepare for this episode, I actually found the seven-year blinatumumab data, and there are six patients who are in remission seven years on from blinatumumab. So... So that yeah. certainly adds to your clinical experience with low fit that Blinn could do the same.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I'm very excited about the curative potential here.
1: So let's talk a little bit about, uh, sort of toxicity and toxicity management. Uh, so, uh, do you think there's much, or how does the CRS cytokine release syndrome that we can see after bispecifics differ from that after CAR T cells?
2: So, cytokine release syndrome, it's a clinical syndrome of fever and essentially sepsis-like symptoms that arises due to the release of cytokines as part of that mechanism of action that the bispecifics have T-cell expansion and in that sense it's a very similar syndrome to what's seen after CAR T-cells. But there are some really important differences Cytokine release syndrome and its severity is linked to the specific drug that's being used. And we know that from CAR T-cell products. Different CAR T-cell products have different CRS rates and manifestations. And it's the same for the biospecific antibodies. Different biospecific antibodies differ in how they're dosed. They differ in their structure and they differ in their mitigation steps, their safety mitigation steps that are taken. And so the clinical characteristics of the CRS does differ but depending on how you're using these agents but as a class the the characteristics of a CRS after a biospecific antibody is that its timing is generally relatively predictable so it will if it's going to happen it will usually happen after the first dose. Secondly the and usually is, about
1: 24 hours or how long after the first dose
2: that actually varies depending on the agents. So we take FITOMAB, it's an intravenous agent. And so the the pharmacokinetics is such that the CRS occurs in a relatively narrow window, about 10 hours after after the infusion, and and it's pretty narrow. That's when it occurs. Whereas with say epcoritimab, It's a subcutaneous infusion, subcutaneously delivered drug. The PK is slightly different. So the T cell activation profile is slightly different. And the CRS is a little bit less predictable, not that sort of the night of treatment, but maybe a day or two post-treatment with that particular agent. So by way of um, illustration, that's how the different, some of the fine print with the cytokine release syndrome varies between the different products. The other, but very consistently across the products, CRS is dose related, which is why we always start with a little dose with these biospecific antibodies and then step up. And then it's related to the patient's characteristics. And and that means that it's got to do with the volume of the antigen that we're targeting. If you just think about a patient who has very low volume disease is less likely to get cytokine release syndrome than a patient who has very advanced disease. And the way I think about it is just antigen burden and antigen availability. And this is is clinician thinking, this is blunt thinking, but I find it quite useful to think about it like this. If I've got a patient with stage four disease and with a high LDH that's going up day by day, this is a patient who's at higher risk of cytokine release syndrome. If I've got a patient with multiple extranodal sites or bone marrow involvement, and we might touch on leukemic phase disease, but that sort of available antigen outside of the lymph node, then these are patients who I think are at higher risk of cytokine release syndrome as well. So antigen burden, antigen availability is the framework I use for thinking about cytokine release syndrome. So, so, the, in, in the Glofitimab study, the overall rate of CRS is about two thirds of patients. And most patients who get it got it on dose one. About half of patients got it on dose one. And it's predominantly grade one CRS. So fever is the problem. The great thing here is that you just haven't given your CAR T-cell product a huge one-off resource resource investment. So you're relatively unconstrained about what you're going to do about it you can just give it a dose of dexamethasone and that might terminate the CRS and stop it going to a higher grade CRS. And you're not going to sweat at night about whether you've just killed your CAR T-cell because it doesn't matter. We use steroids across all of these agents as prophylaxis against cytokine release syndrome routinely. Every bispecific antibody has steroids as prophylaxis against CRS as part of the treatment regimen. They vary between different agents about how those steroids are used and for how long they're used and what the dose is, but but that differs from CAR T-cells. And steroids can easily be used to, to ameliorate it, but we would still use tocilizumab if a patient developed grade 2 cytokine release syndrome. And in that sense, it's a very similar syndrome to what we see after CAR T-cell products. And, and very reliably, we see that the rate of CRS drops with each subsequent dose of the bispecific antibody, even if the subsequent dose of the bispecific antibody is higher than the initial dose. And that's consistent across all the different agents as well. We found with glofitamab that if we use dexamethasone as the prophylaxis against cytokine release syndrome, actually we didn't see any anything worse than grade one CRS beyond the second dose. And that second dose CRS rate came down from roughly half of patients in dose one to just about 15% of patients in dose two who got cytokine release syndrome. So it's it's very manageable as a side effect and and something that I think as a community of clinicians we'll get very used to managing routinely. We'll get used to just looking at a patient and going, okay, you're at slightly higher risk. I'm gonna, I'm going to have my steroids at the ready. But yeah, I think it's a very manageable side effect.
1: How do you think that will play into the kind of interplay of inpatient versus outpatient administration of biospecifics and also in the US community versus tertiary hospitals, perhaps in Australia, rural versus versus urban hospitals? Do you think that we'll get to the point where we can, the care of a patient, they might get their first dose in one setting and be able to have subsequent doses in another setting? Do you think it's sort of predictable enough to do um, that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I have to be a bit careful here because I'm mindful as a non-US clinician that there are a whole bunch of complexities around funding and models and those sort of things that affect the significance of some of this. As I understand it, the label in the US requires a one-night hospitalisation after the first dose and then hospitalisation on subsequent doses only if there was a problem on the first dose. I think that as these drugs get released into the wild, that there will be lots of projects that look at optimising resource utilisation and in different settings, and we'll see a lot of research in that space. These are outpatient treatments predominantly. And when I consider that we are treating a population of patients who have relapsed refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, an aggressive disease with near guaranteed um, mortality of left untreated, it's remarkable that you can treat these patients as an outpatient predominantly. I mean, it's really incredible. It's much more an outpatient treatment than most CAR T-cell products. And, and it's a more outpatient treatment than most platinum-containing salvage combination treatments. So so how do I think it will play out? I think there will be a constant drive to minimise the resource utilisation associated with these drugs, I think there'll be a constant drive to reduce hospitalization but I also think there'll always there will be patients where you can't avoid keeping them in hospital for the first dose and and they're the ones with the very advanced stage disease where where clinicians will become very confident now there are scoring systems that look at this that have a very high positive predictive value and negative predictive value in terms of the rate of CRS and they incorporate the sorts of things that I talked about the volume of the tumor, the LDH, and, and and things like that. So those scoring systems might come into practice. I still think they need some work, but on the basis of preliminary work done, particularly by Roche, in this space, it is possible to develop a scoring system which says if you score this, you come into hospital, and if you score that, you don't. How will that play out in terms of the market and the uptake of one by specific versus the other? I think that's a very geographic that's all tied in with there's a whole bunch of factors that that, that tie into that beyond beyond, beyond just the clinical yeah yeah
1: we discussed sort of infections in patients receiving bispecific antibodies quite a lot with in our episode with ajay Chari about myeloma and my reading of the literature is that infections seem a bit less common for lymphoma patients receiving bispecifics than myeloma patients so so my first question is do you think that's right that it is a bit less common and and do you think it's sort of more patient related or disease related or more antigen that we're targeting related? And what's your approach to infectious prophylaxis for patients you're giving bispecific antibodies to?
2: So B cell depletion increases the risk of infection. We know that from years of use of drugs like rituximab and belinutuzumab and blinatumomab and CAR T cells. So what we're seeing with biospecific antibodies really confirms that there is a, an infection signal from B cell targeting bispecific antibodies, and it, it has to do. We do see reduced immunoglobulin in some patients. That that is consistent with that mechanism of action. In the glofitamab trial, about forty percent of patients had any grade infection reported, but there was only about four percent of patients who had sepsis, and only about three percent had febrile neutropenia. So. Eddie, your question really also goes to the types of infections that we're seeing. So to just work through it, what impacts the risk of infection? In the myeloma space, which is outside of my personal area of interest and expertise in terms of development of biospecifics, at least, I think we heard in your other podcasts that the the target is important, BCMA versus non-BCMA and so forth. And there's some interesting papers that have come out uh, in that regard in just the last couple of weeks. And so definitely the target antigen is part of the story. The other part of the story is the patient's disease context. Patients with multiply treated multiple myeloma have been treated, have an immune dysregulation from their prior treatments. It's the same with B-cell lymphomas. So depending on how intensively the patient was treated before will impact their risk of infection. And then the other thing that hard to go into on a podcast is the difference in steroid exposure. So with glofitamab, we give a dose of dexamethasone prior to each glofitamab dose until the patient hasn't had CRS for a couple of cycles, and then we drop the dexamethasone altogether. So there's no steroid exposure. Whereas the cumulative steroid exposure with some of the other biospecific antibodies is higher. So that probably impacts the porn infection. So my framework for prophylaxis against infection is to think about these as steroid-exposed patients with B-cell depletion and therefore to prophylax against PCP pneumonia routinely and uh, zoster reactivation routinely. And I've certainly seen patients with bad, and I'm talking about clinical experience rather than published data, I've certainly seen patients with PCP pneumonia in the context of not receiving appropriate prophylaxis and also terrible reactivation of zoster in the context of either inadequate or absent prophylaxis so i think those i think that's how we need to think about these patients particularly patients who are still receiving the infusions actively covid-19 comes up and there were some covid-19 related deaths in across all of these trials which were conducted at the height of the pandemic. And, and, but in my own clinical practice, there are very few patients who I've had to take off treatment from by specific antibodies due to acquiring COVID-19. I work in a very, in a, in an area where, where patients are almost uniformly vaccinated and, have easy access to antivirals. So this these are drugs that are deliverable even in the era of, of COVID-19.
0: One follow-up question I wanted to ask to build on the prophylaxis that you said is regarding IVIG. So in the myeloma world at least the data that has come out mostly retrospective data or I would say secondary analysis of the of the trials showing that primary prophylaxis with IVIG, it uh, really decreases the risk of infection. Now, how much is the magnitude of decrease? I think that's debatable. There are some biases in some of the retrospective studies. But clearly, the consensus is to do primary prophylaxis with IVIG in patients who develop hypogammaglobulinemia, which is almost 100% of patients who are responders in myeloma. How do you use, how do you decide who to use IVIG in lymphoma? Do you use primary prophylaxis versus secondary prophylaxis once they had recurrent infections? What is your framework for using IVIG in lymphoma?
2: So I think the rate of hypogamaglomerate, so for starters, there's very little published data and I'm sure we'll see some secondary analysis and I'm aware of some analyses that are going on. So we'll see some more data in this space. So I'll have to tell you by clinical feel rather than pegging this to to rich publications. But firstly, I think the the problems with infection with these bispecific antibodies in the setting of lymphoma are much less than bispecifics in myeloma. I think, as a whole, patients seem to suffer the side effects of or seem to suffer a, a rate of hypogammaglobulinemia which is lower and the side effect profile from the hypogammaglobulinemia, anemia, which is different from patients with myeloma. So I think the overall risk of the patient population is lower. And then on the basis of that rule of thumb, the role of primary prophylaxis is likely to be substantially lower. And I don't use it at all in my practice. I don't use primary prophylaxis at all for my patients with relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, unless they have a very uh, secondary prophylaxis. It's the only context patients have had an infection plus demonstrable hypogammaglobulinemia. I don't see that all of my patients in long-term follow-up after glofitamab ha- have hypogammaglobulinemia, but I have had patients who have had hypogammaglobulinemia that has been long-standing but the number of those is relatively low. And I don't think people should come away with the message bispecific antibody equals massive infection risk. I think it's a very context, target-related, steroid exposure-related story. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And
0: it shows how, based on different disease and target, the side effect profile can change. Uh, Next, it would be good to discuss the use of bispecifics in follicular lymphoma, particularly mercenitizumab. So how does the efficacy of mocinitizumab in follicular lymphoma compare with other bispecifics, such as you mentioned, lofitumab, for example, in aggressive lymphoma?
2: Yeah, so mocinitizumab, of course, is available in the US and in Europe, and it's a drug which is delivered as a fixed course treatment and given with relatively few step-up doses and then clearly very effective in follicular lymphoma. The, the overall response rate to mosinituzumab is around 70% and the complete remission rate is around 60% in patients with at least two prior lines of treatment. And we saw in the pivotal data with mosinituzumab that this was really able to address patients whose immediate prior therapy had been ineffective. So mosin clearly potent and it has an excellent safety profile. It's, it's an outpatient treatment. The rate of grade two or above CRS is very low. And we don't have it routinely in Australia. We only have it in clinical trials in Australia. And I have less personal hands-on experience of its use. But those who use it in routine practice tell me that patients find it very easy to manage the the dosing schedule and it's effective. And when you look at the numbers compared to, say, CAR-T's, it's giving these immunotherapies a run for their money. Now... Your question is about the other biospecifics. So there's no other biospecific that's yet approved for follicular, but there's, and most of these companies have prioritised development in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Epcuritimab and Glofitamab are very similarly efficacious in the context of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, whereas the CR rate for MOSAN in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is a little lower, and the CR rate for odrinexidumab is still being kind of worked out, but seems to be just a little lower yet the toxicity profile is just a little higher across all of these agents compared to Mosen. So we see a higher rate of overall CRS and a higher rate of grade two plus CRS with glofitumab and epcuritumab compared to Mosen. So it sort of speaks to the questions we've been talking about toxicity and management and outpatient management and those sorts of contexts. I think Patients with follicular lymphoma are, have a different profile from patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Looking at glifidumab alone or in combination with obinutuzumab, uh, the complete remission rate was 70% in, in one of the cohorts. The overall response rate was 100%. Much smaller numbers than the pivotal MOSIN study. So crude by crude comparisons, at least as good and possibly more effective at putting a patient into a complete remission. That's reassuring if you've got a patient with transform lymphoma more than one thing going on. We kind of already knew that from the DLBCL data anyway, but so so at least as good, but with a different toxicity profile. And then f Similarly, very good overall response rates. One piece of data that was very interesting at the mid-year conferences was the combination of epcritamab with, so the combination of lenalidomide, epcritumab, and rituximab, 97% overall response rate, and a complete remission rate, 86%. Small numbers, durability, yet unclear, but pretty good for populations of patients that appear to be similar to the sorts of characteristics of those recruited into the pivotal CAR-T trials in follicular lymphoma. So as a class, clearly effective, and but different clinical characteristics in their use is probably the best way to say it. And I think durability is something that we need where Mohsen leads in terms of us having concrete data to refer to.
0: So I just wanted to mention one more thing that regarding the glofitamab trial, for example, included patients with not only DLBCL, but also transformed follicular lymphoma, high-grade B-cell lymphoma, and primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma. And there's also promising data emerging in mantle cell lymphoma, for example. Would you expect the bispecific antibodies uh, will work similarly across all B-cell lymphoma subtypes?
2: Or do you think there'll be differences
0: based upon the histology?
2: So I think one of the main differences is going to be around safety i think that the that if you have a b cell lymphoma with cd20 on the surface of it and you give them a bispecific antibody it's going to be a potent treatment option but there will be some fine print about how it's used and this comes back to what i was talking about a little bit in terms of in terms of the risk factors for cytokine release syndrome and that concept of antigen availability, marrow involvement, or leukemic phase disease. So, going to the easy bit first, which is transformed follicular lymphoma, high-grade B-cell lymphoma, primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma. So, I don't think that there's any difference between those two. There, there was. We generally actually see a slightly higher CR rate in transformed follicular lymphoma than non than DLBCL NOS. We clearly see CRs in patients with double-hit lymphoma. They are better. There's slightly higher numbers in the epicaridumab study the relatively few patients in the glofitumab data. and and But as I alluded to before, double-hit lymphoma is generally a harder disease to treat. And I think that's true across the, all the biospecific antibodies. It's true in any context. But I still think that these will be viable treatment options for double-hit lymphoma. And uh, primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma relatively underrepresented across the trials as well. And certainly I've had positive personal experiences of using this drug in primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma and don't see any clinical difference in practice. So I think it will be important But developing in PMBCL is a challenge, as we know. So I suspect it will be used and there'll be some registry data or something like that will help us in that particular entity. I think mantle cell lymphoma, so then there's the low grade, there's the sort of funny leukemic type diseases like mantle cell lymphoma and chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So these are diseases where the antigen's in your bloodstream. And it's just a little harder to develop these drugs when you're more likely to have early T cell activation and CRS in the development. So we're, it's taking longer to see this data come out, but the data of glofitimab in mantle cell lymphoma is possibly some of the data that I'm most excited about. We're seeing we've seen relatively low numbers of patients in conference presentations, but complete remission rates in excess of two thirds in patients, including patients who've been. Refractory to BTK inhibitors or relapsed after BTK inhibitors who are really an area of need. And we're seeing deep, durable remissions. And my personal experience is I've had patients with stage four, blastic mantle cell lymphoma, with disease everywhere, completely refractory, progressing on bite BTK inhibitors, terrible disease. And we didn't have immediate access to CARTEs as a treatment option in for this in the patients I'm thinking of. And, and we've seen I've seen deep and deep remissions more than a year anecdotally, and that's been presented in, in, in conference presentations. So I think there is uh, real room to, to expand the development of, of these bispecific antibodies in, in these other B-cell lymphoma subtypes, but the details matter. So with glofitumab, we're using two doses of abinutuzumab before the glofitumab is given to try to reduce that B-cell burden in the peripheral blood, to reduce the B-cell antigen availability for these patients with frequently extranodal disease. And and I think some of those details and the dosing may be different and all those sorts of things is why we're taking longer to see the mantle cell data come out. And I'm sure that there are similar reasons why it's difficult to develop in other low-grade lymphomas as well but are they going to be active?
1: So we've mentioned already some of, or we've touched on some of the differences between the different bispecific antibodies. And I definitely want to include sort of Odronextamab in this discussion, as well as kind of any others you think we should discuss. You mentioned root of administration, obviously Epco's subcut, and I think certainly glofit and Mosin IV. You had a very nice uh, slide at Soho last year where you compared the number of hospital visits in a year or in the first year of treatment between glowfit epco and odronextamab and and i don't know if the odro i don't know if that was based on the updated odronextamab step up schedule but certainly the slide when you presented it you said it was 14 visits uh, for Glowfit in a year 27 for epco and 35 in number i don't know if that got better with the, the change in odraneximab protocol but i thought that was a, a kind of one nice one one nice way of thinking about it in terms of comparing them and then the other thing i wanted to hear your thoughts about is some of the epco trials is paired with rituximab sometimes it's not paired with rituximab as far as i understand Glowfit is always or almost always given after obinutuzumab, so what do you think the kind of do you think there's, how important do you think that difference is in terms of pairing with a CD20 or not pairing with a CD20 antibody?
2: Okay, so there, so I think that the difference in administration of the bispecific antibodies is really very important in terms of how one might talk to patients about them and the impact on patients. Glofitimab and mosinatuzumab have always been developed as fixed course treatments. Now, mosin has two kind of fixed courses, eight or 17 cycles. Glofit, 12 cycles. And and those drugs are given intravenously. Epcritimab and odronextamab given continuously or until progression. So quite a different sort of baseline philosophy in terms of how the drugs have been developed. Epcrutumab is unique because it's given at the moment subcutaneously. We know there's work being done on other forms of of development for these other agents, but at the moment, epcrutumab is the subcutaneously delivered treatment. All of the biospecific antibodies use step-up dosing because of that issue that CRS is related to the size of the first dose. So all of them start with a small dose. Glofitimab is unique because we use a single dose of Obinutuzumab, anti-CD20 antibody, the week before we start that first step up dose. What that does is it means that the first step up dose with Glofitimab at 2.5 milligrams is an active dose. The target dose of Glofitimab is 30 milligrams. By comparison, the initial step up dose for for odrinextamab and ecrutamab is much less than the target dose and and the step up dosing strategy for ecrutamab and odrinextamab involves more steps more visits to the hospital to get up to that target dose so that and, and in addition more steroids so In the case of Odronextamab, and Eddie, you've referred to the evolution of the Odronextamab dosing, and I've got to say it is tricky to follow sometimes exactly how that's being managed, but more than one visit to the hospital, so split dosing with steroid prophylaxis before and after treatment. Epcoridumab, it's given weekly for the first three cycles of treatment, then fortnightly, and then monthly. And so what that means is in the first half year, you've got 18 visits with epcoritamab, 21 visits with odronextamab and 10 visits with glofitamab. because glofitamab, you go, you have two, you have three steps separated by a week, and then you're on your target dose and you have your target dose once every three weeks and then stop at cycle 12. Epcoritimab, many more steps in your first couple of months of treatment. You get to your target quickly, but you keep getting your target dose relatively frequently and so i think that what that what that means is not clearly a difference if we just take the easiest example between gofitamab and etirumab not clearly a difference in in clinical efficacy like benefit to the patient but clearly a difference in parking costs for the patient clearly a difference in number of times they have to come in and engage with an organization and interruptions to their life during that kind of step up phase and clearly a difference in cumulative steroid exposure, and that's even more true for odronextamab, which has even more doses given. And where I think we're still yet to see finally where this is all landed. At least I'm yet to see where it's all landed. So, so there, I think there are practical differences for patients. On the other hand, Epco's given subcut doesn't require doesn't require uh, intravenous infusions. On the other hand. For high risk patients, you might use intravenous fluid as prophylaxis against cytokine release syndrome. So, if you're accessing the patient anyway, what's the difference? So, I think that this will come down to physician preference as well as patient preference. And, but they're the differences. That's how I think about it. And,
1: the, and just to con- confirm that i think the numbers i gave were 12 months and the numbers you gave for number of visits were six months if i if i heard that oh correctly. that's right
2: so at 12 months 14 visits for glofitumab or 15 depending on where you cut off is Epcritamab 27 andradextamab 35 yeah in the first 12 months and i think a big part of that is the fact that you stop glofitumab after 12 cycles you stop after you've had 12 cycles you don't get any more treatment so you are free to to not have any more visits. And I think that accounts uh, also for that difference at 12 months.
1: So I wanted to ask kind of what trials in the bispecific uh, space are you most excited about? And the sort of add-on question to that is about kind of lunatumumab's approved and used a bit in MRD. Do you think that kind of context where you have a tiny bit of residual disease might be somewhere we we see bispecifics cropping up in lymphoma?
2: So for starters, I think that the, the Epcrudumab and Odronextumab and Glofitumab programs that we're seeing from these big drug companies are amazing. They are, they are doing everything you can think of. So we are seeing a new era of clinical trials in B-cell lymphoma, and that's incredibly exciting for patients and physicians. I am excited about some of these combinations. So the bispecifics lend themselves to combinations. I've just completed a clinical trial in Australia, an investigator-initiated clinical trial where we've looked at the combination of of glofitamab with polar RCHP or RCHOP in these young patients with bad lymphoma, high burden lymphoma. And we've just finished recruiting in that study. And I'm really excited about the possibility that 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 glofitimab might help address that that what I consider to be the area of need in DLBCL, which is the high IPI population. I'm very excited about some of the emerging frontline studies that we're beginning to hear about that take that kind of combination, Epco, Odro, and, and Glofitimab, and see whether it can add on top of our CHOP in, in the frontline setting. Because obviously, that is where we really hope that if we can prevent patients ever relapsing, that's really a hit. So, I'm very excited about those trials, but they're multi year trials, and the history of adding things to CHOP or our policy HP is vexed, as, as we all know. So, and then in the relapse refractory setting, really fascinating to think about all the different combinations that can occur. So, one piece of data that I think is really fascinating is if you add polatuzumab which if taken alone isn't particularly potent in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, but if you use it in combination with glofitumab, you see an apparently higher complete remission rate and a very positive safety profile. So some of those kind of orthogonal combinations where you think, hang on a tick, this isn't combining an immunotherapy with an immunotherapy, it doesn't make sense, but actually what you're doing is combining non-overlapping toxicities non-overlapping mechanisms of action, and you might see very tractable combinations coming through. And then the other combinations are ones which I'm personally involved with, which look at second signals. So this idea of 4-1-BBL and and CD28 as a way of driving those T-cells harder. They're also very interesting, perhaps more scientifically. I think some of the, the clinical data that's most interesting is these other Combinations with our older tools, which look very promising, and I've also, already, I've already touched on the um, mantle cell stuff, which I think could be transformational in that space. I'm very bullish about that, as you've heard. And you asked me another question, Eddie. What was the question? It was MRD, MRD, you know, oh, but right. with a little
1: bit of residual disease. Whether that okay. that might be a space for a bispecific, given the kind of burden questions.
2: So, glefitamab leads to a complete remission in the first median 42 days the, the 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 evidence that patients are losing benefit from say RCHOP chop in the frontline setting begins after your pet 2 and becomes clearer after pet 4 and and then you're talking about the context of seeing through a blood test that the patient has mrd detectable disease after pet your pet your end of treatment pet i think designing clinical trials in that space is very challenging You need a good biomarker, and I think the ctDNA is obviously the promise here, but we're still waiting on on a validated biomarker in that space. And then I think we need to think philosophically, where do we really lose the game in frontline diffuse large B-cell lymphoma? We probably lose the game in that first 18 weeks of treatment. And I think if you've got MRD at the end of 18 weeks of treatment with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma... Then maybe you're picking up on a low-grade lymphoma. I don't know. What's your endpoint going to be? How are you going to how are you going to really improve outcomes for patients in that space? So, so I think the MRD idea, there's plenty of people with an MRD idea evaluating this in investigator-initiated trial. So it's a good question. But if I was a betting person, I'd say our CHOP, our policy HP cures the majority of patients. And patients who aren't cured by those diseases you generally know about it pretty early most of the work probably needs to be done very early in the treatments my sort of feeling is the earlier we can get these novel treatments in the more impactful they're going to be in changing endpoints that we're easily able to med- measure and so that's a complicated answer i know but i just so I just don't know that MRD is the right paradigm for diffuse RG b cell lymphoma in terms of prolonging things and preventing manifest relapse. To
3: just follow up on that the question Eddie asked. And this might be a naive question coming from a myeloid physician, but one thing that breaks my heart when I see a consult of patient who developed a therapy-related myeloid malignancy after receiving chemotherapy for DLBCL. And these are the patients who generally tend to have an aggressive myeloid malignancy. Given the excellent activity of the bispecific antibodies, do, we, do you envision a future where we will see chemo-free treatment in the upfront setting?
2: I've sat in committees where people say, our goal is to achieve chemo-free. There's an emerging story about secondary myeloid malignancies after CAR-T and Things like that. Now we know that those patients all get a bit of depleting treatments, so they're not truly chemo-free. And I don't think we fully understand the interaction between the immune system and, and secondary myeloid malignancy. So, I, so, so the first thing is not to assume yet that chemo-free immunotherapy-only approach would would hugely change those numbers. They might. It's a reasonable guess, but it's not absolutely clear. Diffuse chemo is a great treatment for diffuse large B cell lymphoma. As a development step, it's really hard to completely remove chemotherapy from treatment. We've seen some really interesting data doing that with mosinotuzumab in the elderly population. I've run studies myself in chemo ineligible patients in lymphoma, and they are really hard trials to run there's ethical challenges and recruitment challenges, comorbidity challenges that makes these trials really tricky to run. Now, most potent biospecific antibodies are what I would want to use, but cytokine release syndrome is related to disease burden. And the significance of that toxicity is going to be related to patients' comorbidities to some extent. So Giving a, a biospecific antibody to someone whose disease is completely de novo untouched and not deburdened by chemotherapy, it, it could be challenging. But we've seen some data from Mosin, which looks interesting in an older patient group, but doesn't achieve CR rates and durability, anything like what we'd really be shooting for if we were to try to introduce that into a younger patient population. I've touched on GlowFit plus Polar. I think what we should be doing in the relapsed refractory setting is looking at those sorts of combinations and trying to, and we've gamed this out. My colleagues and I tried to work out how we could do this and what it would take, what the steps would be. And I suppose the steps would be to try to reduce the number of treatment cycles in lower risk patients first, or using MRD not as a way to continue a treatment, but as a way to discontinue a treatment and then reduce the number of chemo cycles until you can get it down to as low as possible. But it will be so hard in a context where chemotherapy is so good to write those trials and those endpoints to get to that. And for, they're, they're, we all hear the patients who are upset and worried about having chemotherapy loud and clear, but there's also patients who get very upset and worried about omitting treatments that are known to work. And that's what makes these trials hard to write and to execute. And oh, look, there's some other data too, right? There's a trial that's looked at dropping rituximab and only using a bispecific in combination with CHOP. It didn't look very good. So, and Eddie actually asked me that and I think I slipped answering that. I wasn't trying to avoid it, but I think I forgot to answer the question. You got two CD20 targeting agents in some of the EPCO studies, why are they doing that? Why are the trials looking at bispecific antibodies frontline in combination with rituximab giving two CD20 antibodies? Rituximabs improved survival. It's very hard to take it out of the trial. It's very hard to take out a, a drug. And secondly, ADCC, the mechanism by which rituximab works is may still be important and it's not the same mechanism as these bispecific antibodies. So de-escalating the combination partners is challenging, but your question is a question that is is very topical and we're all asking, but I think it's a 10, 15 year uh, journey, maybe longer.
1: A good uh, start to reach for. Thank you so much for a, uh, a fantastic discussion. We really appreciate you taking the time to come and, and chat with us and hopefully we can get you back on again to talk about lymphoma soon.
2: Thanks very much for having me. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.
3: Thank, thank you so much.